Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Today we're going to look at verses 12 through 14, and then over the next four weeks we're going to break open the rest of that important passage and take a look at it. So let's stand together, if you would, as I read this morning Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, that entire passage, and then we'll come back and look at 12 through 14. You listen as I read the very word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us now so to hear them, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his majestic name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, as I read those last ten verses of Romans 5, I think you recognize that this, this is a very difficult section of Paul's letter. But I selected this passage for our consideration over the next five weeks because even though it's, it's very, very difficult, it highlights one of the most important doctrines, I think, for Christians to understand, and that doctrine is our union with Christ. You know, many Christians today don't understand, they don't appreciate who they are in Jesus Christ. They don't, they don't grasp their status as a child of God. I hear people say that God doesn't understand their plight. Many people have no rest. They experience little joy in their life. 
The purpose of this great passage in Romans is to explain to all believers that salvation in Christ provides life and power and joy and rest now, today. You see, our faith doesn't promise merely pie in the sky by and by. It's for today. It provides present prevailing righteousness, dynamic effective life, an irresistible, invincible dominion. The Lord does not want us to be weaklings in this world. You and I as Christians have been made partakers of the divine nature. We are in union with Christ, and we should be strong and triumphant. And I think we need to start acting like it. You know, if someone were to ask you, what the most important events in human history are, what would you say? Would you, would you perhaps cite the discovery of fire? How about the invention of the wheel? Would you say the invention of the printing press? Or perhaps the discovery of atomic energy or the discovery of the computer chip? You have your list, I have my list. And all those events and discoveries are obviously important. But, dear ones, they pale before the two incredible events that the Apostle Paul talks about in this passage. The fall of the race in Adam and the redemption of a new race by the Lord Jesus Christ. These two events are the pivotal points of history. And Paul summarizes their importance in verse 18, saying, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see, in these ten short verses, Paul deals with mankind's union with Adam on the one hand, which leads to death and condemnation and with the believer's union with Christ on the other, which leads to life and righteousness. Union with Christ. You know, that's a, it's a tough concept for us to grasp. It stretches our minds. So as we begin this morning, I want to probe this important doctrine just a little bit. And let me just note first that the union of the believer with Christ is one of three great unions in Scripture. The first is the union of the persons of the Godhead in the Trinity. You know, you and I as Christians speak of one God. Yet on the basis of the revelation of God in Scripture, we also believe that this one God exists in three persons, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I can't fully explain how three persons are in the same time, only one God. But the Bible teaches that, and I believe it. The second union is that of the two natures of Christ in one person. The Lord Jesus Christ is one person. He's not, he's not a multiple personality. Nevertheless, Scripture says he's also 100% God, and he's 100% man. He possesses two natures. He's the infinite God-man. You know, the, the Ecumenical Council of Chal, uh, Chalcedon in A.D. 451 affirmed 
that Jesus is truly man and truly God, and that his two natures are so united as to be without mixture, confusion, separation, or division, each nature retaining its own attributes. Now, trying to get my mind around that gives me a brain cramp. But that's what the Bible teaches. And so I believe it. We have a similar situation in the case of the union of believers with Christ. We're probably never going to be able to understand this union fully either. But it's important. Therefore, we should hold on to it and try to gain as much understanding as we can. So that's one point. The second important point to keep in mind as we study this doctrine is that the union of the believer with Christ, it's not a concept that was invented by Paul. Rather, it's a concept that was first taught by Jesus. Paul picked it up and built upon it. Now, Jesus never used the term mystical union in Scripture. He taught the doctrine in other words. He taught it through analogies. Just a couple of examples. In John 15, Jesus says clearly that he is the vine. His followers are only branches, and they can bear no fruit unless they remain in the vine. We also see this mystical union in Christ's teaching on the Lord's Supper. The sacrament clearly symbolizes our participation in the life of Christ. In other places in Scripture, Jesus spoke of himself as a solid, a solid foundation for building a successful life. He also taught that he was the cornerstone in which the whole building, meaning us, is held together. But by far, I think, the greatest of all illustrations of the union of the believer with Christ is marriage, in which a man and a woman are joined together to form one flesh, one family. Christ says that this union of a man and a woman is a profound mystery, but it illustrates the union of Christ with his church. So, Union with Christ is an important doctrine in the scriptures. It's important for all Christians to grasp it. And I think in order to understand more fully how we are in Christ, we also need to see how we're in Adam, which is where our text starts today in verse 12. Adam is the one man mentioned in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. <clears throat> the passage starts by showing, on the one hand, how the union of the race in Adam and the union of believers in Christ are similar, and how, on the other hand, they're also very different. The results of the first being evil, and the results of the second being very, very good. Let me just give you a little context here. Paul has been teaching for a couple of chapters that in the work of justification, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. But you see, most of us are reluctant to accept that truth. 
Therefore, to help us understand and believe in the principle of imputed righteousness, Paul shows that we've already been treated on the basis of this same principle in Adam. Paul says here that Adam's sin has been imputed to the entire race. I think we'll see that more clearly as we look at the flow of the passage. We start with verse 12. It teaches that sin, followed by death, came into the world by Adam. That's pretty straightforward. But I want you to notice at the end of verse 12, at least in my translation, there's a dash. And that dash indicates that Paul breaks off his thought at this point, and he inserts here a fairly long, what I would call a parenthesis. Verses 13 and 14 explain what Paul meant when he said at the end of verse 12, because all sinned. And we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. Verses 15 through 17 continue this little parenthesis, this little sidebar. And it's not until verse 18 that we again pick up Paul's thought, which he began in verse 12. Now, I, I just simply point that out so we can see this full parallelism here between Christ and Adam. If you put verse 12 and verse 18 together, you get a, a paraphrase something like this. On the one hand, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, that is, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also, on the other hand, the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Again, I think this teaches that there were two great acts in history. The act of Adam, which brought condemnation and death, and the act of Jesus, which brought justification and life. Verse 12 is important. It's important in that it assumes two great truths. And you can see them there. The universality of sin and the universality of death. Now, I think most sane people would agree with those two truths. You hear comments like, no one is perfect, to err is human, nothing is certain except death and taxes. But, dear ones, there is a wide, wide gulf among people on just what sin is and why sin and death are universal. You know, the secular mind says that there's no connection between sin and death at all. They're unrelated issues, they say, and, and each can be explained naturally. As far as sin is concerned, secular man says that sin is only an imperfection in human nature. And he sees all things as sort of gradually evolving to more complex and more perfect forms. He argues that sin means only that we're not yet where we hope to be and eventually will be. Now, I think you can see that there are a couple of things wrong with that view of sin. First, if sin is only an imperfection which will be overcome, then it's not really correct to call it sin. And if you can't call a thing sin, that eliminates the possibility of any meaningful discussion about virtues. 
such as honesty and, and integrity. If sin is only an imperfection, soon to be overcome as we evolve, then nobody can said to be better or worse than somebody else. Nothing that we ever do can ever really be inherently wrong. The second problem is this. If sin is only an imperfection to be eliminated in time, why in the world has so much evil been around for so long? If sin is only a little imperfection in our nature, why hasn't that imperfection been eliminated long before now? You know, if you look at the historical record honestly, is it even possible to say that there's been such a thing as progress? Are we really better in a moral sense today than our predecessors? I don't think so. The other inescapable reality that this verse points out is death. Modern man explains death as something inherent in nature itself. Death is just natural. All living things eventually die. Now, that's true. We all die. But you see, the problem is that none of us really believes that this is right. You know, we sense deep down that we were meant to be immortal, that we shouldn't die, that death is wrong. And so what do we get? We get, we get all these images of life beyond death, Mount Olympus, Valhalla. Hades, Sheol, the underworld, nirvana, paradise, heaven, found in all the world's civilizations and religions. The Christian answer to the problem of the universality of sin and death is that death is not natural, but that it's the punishment of God for sin. Classic Christianity says, moreover, that sin entered the world through the one act of Adam, the first man. And that from Adam's sin and its consequence death passed to his descendants. Christianity holds that God appointed Adam as our representative. So that he would stand for all of us. And we would be accounted either just or sinful on the basis of his obedience to or disobedience of God's command. You know, it's as if we were actually there when Adam and Eve ate from that tree. Now, there's a theological term for that view. It's called federalism because of the analogy to the way an ambassador might act on behalf of his country. When an ambassador signs a document or takes some action, he does so for each of the country's citizens, and they're therefore bound by what he does. So historical Reformed Christianity interprets Paul's words here as saying that because Adam sinned, that death came to all of us. What he's saying here is we die not because of our sin, as bad as it is, but because Adam's sin is imputed to us. It's also true that we inherit a sinful nature from Adam. But that isn't what condemns us 
What condemns us and makes us subject to death is the fact that we have all sinned in Adam and that we're all held guilty as a result of his sin. And I want you to see the parallel here. It's our union with Adam that accounts for all of our trouble. And it's our corresponding union with Christ that accounts for our salvation. But here's the question. Is this the right interpretation of what Paul is saying here in verse 12? He says at the end of verse 12 that death spread to all men because all sinned. That sounds pretty much like we die, not because of Adam's sin, but we die because of our own sin. Which is it? Or does it really matter if we die because of Adam's sin or because of our own sin? When you're dead, you're dead. Well, it does matter. And Paul goes on in verses 13 and 14 to tell us why it does matter. And he tells us why this concept of federalism, if you will, is the right interpretation of verse 12. He makes three arguments here in proof of Adam being our representative. I want you to stay with me on this. First, he says that before the Mosaic law was given, sin was in the world. I don't think there's anything complicated about that. It's a fact that sin antedated the law just as Adam came before Moses. Second, he says that sin is not taken into account or imputed or punished when there's no law. Now, what Paul is saying here is that where there's no law, then there's no law to break. So until the Mosaic law was given and could exercise its role of defining just what sin was, sin wasn't reckoned against sinners. Yet, and this is Paul's third point, people continued to die during this time, from Adam to the time of Moses. Even those, Paul says, who didn't sin by breaking a specific command as Adam did. Now, I want you to hear what Paul is saying here. He's making a very, very specific point. There were some people who did flagrantly disobey God's moral law, which was written in their hearts, and they were punished for that. Case in point was the flood, the judgment of those who built, built the Tower of Babel, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Paul's point here is that there were others who didn't sin by disobeying a direct command as Adam did and the people of the flood, Babel, and Sodom did. These others didn't voluntarily and overtly violate an, expre violate an expressly revealed ordinance of God. You know, it's almost like Paul was thinking uh, of people like infants or mentally incapacitated people who were incapable of voluntarily violating a direct command of God. Yet Paul says, there are infants who die. And mentally incapacitated people eventually die just like the rest of the race. And Paul asks the question, why? Why did they die? They didn't voluntarily violate a direct command of God, yet they died just like those who did. Why? And there's only one reason that he can think of. All died because all sinned in and through Adam. 
the representative of the human race. Everybody dies because of Adam's sin. Adam had been appointed by God to be the representative of the race. So that if he, if he stood, we too would stand. And if he fell, we would fall with him. Adam did fall, as we know. And so death passed upon every single one of us. That is Paul's explanation here of why we all die. You know, but I can hear some of you already protesting. It's not fair. I didn't ask Adam to be my representative. I want to pick my own. Or, you know, I want to represent myself. If I had been in Adam's shoes, I would certainly have acted differently. Really. Let me suggest that far from being unfair, the federal or representative way of dealing with us was actually the fairest and kindest of all the ways God could have operated. You say it's not fair that you want to represent yourself. Bad decision. Think about it. You know, Adam faced only one trifling temptation. He was not to eat of one simple tree. Besides, he didn't have a sinful nature. He had all his faculties, which were undoubtedly superior to ours. He lived in a perfect environment. He had a perfect companion. For our part, we're sinful and weak. We live in a world filled with all kinds of temptations. So I maintain to you unequivocally this morning that it was merciful and gracious of God to judge us in Adam and not in ourselves. That's not the most important point. There's this one great fact that you simply cannot miss. If God had chosen to judge us as each of us think we'd like to be judged, that is, in and for ourselves, with no relationship to any other person, then we would all inevitably perish. Because our only hope of salvation is that we may also be judged in Christ. Christ being our representative, just as we've been judged in our representative, Adam. You see, because we've been judged in Adam, we can also be judged in Jesus Christ and be acquitted. And that's precisely what happens for those who are called by God and joined to Jesus Christ through the channel of saving faith. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But you see, this is the way grace works. It's grace from beginning to end. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, just like Adam's sin was imputed to us. Well, let me wrap this up. You know, it's interesting. Apart from the story of his fall... It's remarkable how little is written in the Bible about Adam. Think about it. He was created by God. He was commanded to take dominion over creation. He fell. For him, the first blood sacrifice was made. He had several children. The first one was a murderer. The second, a type of those who believe and follow Christ. The third, the progenitor of the race and fulfillment of the promises of God. There's also recorded his age at death, 930 years old. 
That's it. This is an extremely meager biography. But you know, two stupendous facts make Adam one of the most famous names in history. He was the first man, and he was the first sinner. He dissipated his children's heritage, and we've all been in spiritual poverty ever since. But you know, as we look at Adam through the shadows of time, we really can't judge him too harshly. Because I think we know that he did exactly what we would have done in his place. And indeed, we can look rather kindly upon Adam. Because through him, we learn this marvelous principle of the one standing for the many. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that other person, the last Adam, also standing for the many. You see, as Adam stood for many and brought death upon all of us, so our Lord Jesus Christ stood for many and brings life to all who believe. Can you this morning look at the cross and know that you are in Christ. Now, having been defiled by the stream that flows from Adam, you can find cleansing only by plunging yourself into the stream that flows from the Lord Jesus Christ, dying for us as the head, the representative of the new race. And I want to be clear this morning. All of humanity is in one of two persons this morning. They're either in Christ and as a result are justified before God and have eternal life, or they're still in Adam, and as a result are unjustified before God and are condemned to experience his eternal judgment. You cannot have it both ways. Where are you this morning? Who do you belong to? Are you in Adam, or are you in Christ? How can you know? That you're in Christ. You know, I was thinking about it. It's sort of like those marriage vows which, which Jack and Amy and John and Leah took recently. I think you need to ask yourself, am I married to Jesus? You see, you are if you've taken the vow. Promising to take Jesus to be your loving and faithful Savior. In plenty and in want. In joy and in sorrow in sickness and in health, for this life and for eternity, and if you're living for him. See, God has pronounced the marriage, and I can tell you on the authority of Scripture that what God has joined together, no one, no one, no one will ever put asunder. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. <laughs>